Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. I have with great delight ceded my place tonight on the stage to the National um, Poet Laureate of Wales, Gwyneth Lewis, who has been, aside from being a great poet herself for many years, a great friend and admirer of Seamus Heaney's, Having him here is the fulfillment of a long-cherished wish. It is the most exciting thing, I think, that we've ever had at the festival. Please join me in giving them both a very warm welcome. everybody. Um, it always irritates me when people who are uh, presenting somebody say that their guest needs a, no introduction. This is almost true of Seamus Heaney, but not quite. Um, he was uh, christened Seamus Famous by Clive James, and he has been, become a necessary poet, not just for his readers in his native Ireland, Born into that poetic aristocracy, a farming family in County Derry in Northern Ireland, his first book, Death of a Naturalist, was published in 1966. Since then, 12 collections of poetry have appeared alongside translations and collections of criticism. One could say that it started with a description of a spade and ended with the Nobel Prize, which Seamus Heaney won in 1995, but of course it isn't over yet. I first met Seamus in Harvard more than 20 years ago um, when he had more hair, (laughs) and I think I had more hair myself, longer hair certainly, when he was Boston Professor of Poetry. And as far as I was concerned, he was the only good thing about Harvard in that year. (laughs) I was lucky enough to take his workshop, and I lived off those uh, from week to week, I can tell you. Um, He'd been lured to the east coast of America by Robert Fitzgerald, uh, the poet and translator of Homer, and uh, eventually to Cambridge, in the Cambridge area, where Robert Lowell, the great poet Robert Lowell, who wrote once that he was, Seamus Heaney was the best Irish poet since Yeats. This afternoon, we have an hour, and Seamus will be reading from his new collection, District and Circle. In between times, I think we're going to read a a number of uh, sections, and I will ask questions. Unfortunately, we don't have time for questions from the floor, but I will do my very best to be a worthy floor for you, and I hope I ask some of the questions that you would have liked to have asked Seamus yourselves. So, uh, Seamus, I wonder if you could read perhaps from, uh, or start as you would like, uh, um, from the, the, the book, um, District right. and Circle. You mentioned that there was some uncertainty about uh, the title of the book. Well, <clears throat> it's one of the sweetest uncertainties in any writer's life, as you know. If you have uh, a volume and uh, you think it's more or less ready to go, and you're thinking of a title... If, I think if you, get a t- if you get a title about halfway or two-thirds of the way through it, 
it helps you to go for the go for the ending. But my problem was I had several titles, and uh, I thought uh, I thought of calling at one stage uh, "Planting the Alder." There's a poem about planting an alder tree, and uh, it it had. I mean, I love the tree itself. I like the slightly weepy cadence of the title. And then Paul Muldoon said to me, oh yes, he said, I can just see the reviews, uh, Alderman Heaney. Uh, <laughs> the Alder Statesman and so on. And, so on. and then <clears throat> I had another title which suited because there, Iron, for some reason, comes into several of these poems. So I was thinking of... Ironman Heaney. Uh, no, no. I was thinking of calling it Midnight Anvil. But I thought that was too heroic. Uh, and that no, no book could really live up to it. But the Midnight Anvils was a greeting that was uh, arranged. It's about, about something that happened in the district. Um, a blacksmith called Barney Devlin, who'd, who had written about his forge in the second book, and it had given a title to the second book, Door into the Dark. He was in his 80s on the 31st of December, 1999. And at midnight... On the 31st of December 1999, he struck his anvil 12 times with his hammer. I was going to a magnificent uh, salute to the millennium, so I thought I could use that. But then I thought I said too heroic. Anyway, I ended up calling it District and Circle uh, because I wrote a poem about going into the London Underground. And this was in May last year, May 2005. I was in two bits, a first bit and a second bit, two sonnets. And uh, it began with a, a true life situation, as they say, where, where sometimes, you know, you're going down into the underground, you're confronted with a fellow playing a tin whistle. And quite often he's an Irish chap. And quite often, since you mentioned the rhyme, Seamus and so on, quite often he might half recognize me. <laughs> <laughs> and it placed, all me, placed me in a dilemma Will I demean him by throwing money at his feet? <laughs> or will I elevate him to the status of the, the, the circle? Of the, of the, I mean, it's serious. I mean, he's playing there. He is good at it. And uh, I think recognition and uh, connection is a form of conferral as well as the throwing down. So that's where it started. And then it went deeper down. And of course, once you negotiate with money at the entrance to the underground... Uh, you could be with Charon any day. It did not start with any of that myth stuff at all. It started precisely with, uh, with, with, the, with the situation with, with the busker. And then it went deeper down. And, uh, and, and it did then get a sense of being transported in the underworld in, on a death journey, if you like. Aeneas and the underworld and all that was there. Then in July last year, the uh, bombs occurred on the underground. And I thought to myself, my God, if I keep this title, which I liked, the poem will be scrutinized for all kinds of relevance. And um, so I, I, I built in three more sonnets. So it's a little set of sonnets called District and Circle. I liked the title because it, that title, because it sounded unlike me. Uh, no anvils, no alders. Uh, district and circle. But I think it actually is a very good description 
of your preoccupations is just a more indirect and less heroic one, uh, perhaps. But, you know, the district in, in terms of uh, a specific location and circle in the sense of indirection, which I want to talk about a little further. But, I mean, it's subtle, but it's definitely a, a very good self-description of you as a poet, I think. You see how we had such a good workshop? <laughs> 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 yeah, there it is. Maybe I should read the damn thing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's sonnets. District and circle. Tunes from a tin whistle underground. Curled up a corridor I'd be walking down. To where I knew I was always going to find my watcher on the tiles. Capped by his side. His fingers perked. His two eyes eyeing me in an unaccusing look I'd not avoid, or not just yet, since both were out to sea for ourselves. As the music larked and capered, I'd trigger and untrigger a hot coin held at the ready. But now my gaze was lowered, for was our traffic not in recognition? A corded passage, I would repocket and nod, and he, still eyeing me, would also nod. Posted, eyes front, along the dreamy ramparts of escalators ascending and descending to a monotonous slight rocking in the works, we were moved along, upstanding. Elsewhere, underneath, an engine powered, rumbled, quietened, quickened, evened. The white tiles gleamed, in passages that flowed with draughts from cooler tunnels, I missed the light of all overing long since mysterious day. Parks at lunchtime where the sunners lay on body-heated mown grass regardless. A resurrection scene minutes before the resurrection. Habitues of their garden of delights of staggered summer. Another level down the platform thronged. I re-entered the safety of numbers. A crowd half straggle raveled and half strung like a human chain. The pushy newcomers jostling and purling underneath the vault on their marks to be first through the doors. Street loud, then succumbing to herd quiet. Had I betrayed or not myself or him? Always new to me, Always familiar, this unrepentant, now repentant turn, as I stood waiting, <clears throat> glad of a first tremor, then caught up in the now or never whelm of one and all the full length of the train. Stepping onto it, across the gap, onto the carriage metal, I reached to grab the stubby black roof wart and take my stand from planted ball of heel to heel of hand as sweet traction and heavy downslump stayed me. I was on my way, well-girded, yet on edge, spot-rooted, buoyed, aloof, listening to the dwindling noises off, my back to the unclosed door, the platform empty, and wished it could have lasted, that long between-times pause before the budge and glaze over, when any forwardness was unwelcome and bodies readjusted, blindsided to themselves 
and other bodies. So, deeper into it, crowd-swept, strap-hanging, my lofted arm a swivel like a flail, my father's glazed face in my own waning and craning. Again the growl of shutting doors, the jolt and one-off treble of iron on iron, then a long centrifugal haulage of speed through every dragging socket. And so, by night and day, to be transported through galleried earth with them, the only relict of all that I belong to, hurtled forward, reflecting in a window mirror-backed by blasted, weeping rock walls, flicker-lit. It's strange stuff, I think, although it's quite ordinary. (laughs) Quite ordinary. Well, I wish I could write ordinary poetry like that. Um, I wanted to ask you a little about... Whenever we go into a Seamus Heaney landscape, I'm never quite sure where we are, even uh, if you're in Ireland or in a mythological place or both. Um, You've had, uh, throughout your writing career, a remarkable um, persistence of gaze on a certain type of uh, subject matter, Um, a lot of it to do with your childhood on the farm, the way you write about that, you, you can still hear the sounds of it, the, the, the feel, the judder of, of um, uh, uh, a blow through the arms. Um, and yet, these landscapes are never quite what they appear to be. Um, they may be local, but they're also um, uh, in a different place. I mean, would you like to expand a little? What I want to know really is, is District and Circle, this book, a departure from that type of material? It seems uh, to be, but I suspect it's not. I don't know. The, the same places are revisited, I agree. But I think, I mean, when I began to write, I was in my 20s. I'm now in my 60s. And the, the 40 years of looking changes things a bit. I, I don't think it's nostalgic. I think it is viewed with uh, an awareness of the oddity of my experience. That is to say, I, I, I've said this before, repeating what Edwin Muir said. Edmund Muir was born in the Orkneys, then transferred to the slums, of, the slums of Glasgow, then ended up in British Council uh, representative. Well, before that, he, he was in Czechoslovakia, and he translates Kafka. And then after the war, he's in Czechoslovakia during the, the communist takeover. So he says he, he moves from a kind of a, a medieval culture where the hearth was blown up in the morning with turf, to, to the kind of 20th century experience. And, um, I mean, although my uh, actual, the actual life I lived is not in any way as, uh, as event-filled and history-laden as Moore's, I feel, uh, I feel what I lived through in 1940s and 50s in, in, in uh, County Derry, of course, it was lived experience, but it, it has a, a quality of once upon a timeness, merely because if, <clears throat> if I say well or milk or, I don't know, cow even, or <laughs> field or pump, 
you know, they have physical credibility to me. They have thingness. But I think for a lot of people, they are diction of a sort, you know. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. I'm, and in fact, I'm kind of uneasy about making too clear to myself the answer you're asking for. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I think what, what excited my curiosity and has for a long time is that, uh, for example, you lived in America for many years, um, and that that always hasn't been, in terms of subject matter, evident in your poems. But I think that um, the, the poetry, as you say, is not nostalgic, that the poetry about uh, rural life in Ireland is very much present. And that's what I mean about uh, not always being sure which landscape we're in, that you, you translate one into the other quite often, I think. Well... Certainly in some of these poems it's true that that has happened. And uh, there's a poem called Anna Horish, which is the name of the place. It was very local, belongs to me, a kind of a, a pathway in. But it's Anna Horish, 1944, and it's a pathway out for me too because I, I wrote this thing. It's, it's, it's written in the voices of neighbours of ours who were pig farmers. And they, they killed pigs in a, in a slaughterhouse every Tuesday morning. So, I mean, my childhood was punctuated with the squeals of dying animals uh, on and off. But after the invasion of uh, Afghanistan, uh, we, there were these television images coming in of, of these uh, opium farmers, basically, standing on the roadside, looking at these American troops going past in their vehicles. And, you know, they, there they were, part of... a huge, dangerous history of the new millennium. And they were standing in their fields watching it. Now, this exactly happened in 1943, late 43, early 44, where I grew up. The American troops who were on their way, they didn't know, we didn't know, they were on their way to Normandy. They were stationed and in training. Now, I, I, made, I made these guys, I, this was a poem, I made them speak what they saw. I meant it to, it linked for me to what was going on in the world. Uh, but it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily a protest at the, what's going on. It's just a register, it's a way of registering the reality. So it's in two, maybe you should read that, should I? Yeah, that would be a good idea to read that one, yes. Anna Horace, 1944. We were killing pigs when the Americans arrived. A Tuesday morning, sunlight and gutter blood outside the slaughterhouse. From the main road, they would have heard the squealing, then heard it stop, and had a view of us in our gloves and aprons coming down the hill. Two lines of them, guns on their shoulders, marching. Armoured cars and tanks and open jeeps sunburnt hands and arms, unknown, unnamed, hosting for Normandy. Not that we knew then where they were headed, standing there like youngsters as they tossed us gum and tubes of coloured sweets. Do we know what a poem is? Do you? No, I don't. <laughs> You must have some idea. 
Yeah, it's something that sounds right once you're finished with it. But uh, when, just as I read that, I realize it's the, the voices and the, the credibility of the voice to yourself. And in this case, I was speaking in their voice and I could believe them, you know. That's but because like you knew farmers the same, who lived the same life, basically. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. they, they're witnesses, you know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you have... Um, uh, you, you, you have resisted being drawn into political, overt political comment in your poetry. Um, but it, I think that you are a very political poet um, by, by means of this indirection, um, this way of translating one situa human situation into another to draw parallels. Can you tell me a bit about you know, um, that refusal of yours? Well, maybe, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's partly to do with where I grew up, the coded nature of Ulster culture still, uh, where there's a lot of danger under the surface, a lot of division, a lot of, uh, therefore, uh, codes and stealths and courtesies and evasions. And um, to speak in, uh, I mean, any little flicker of nomenclature or indeed vocabulary can kind of give the, give the full set of signals to the other. I mean... Uh, I think in, in, in Ulster vernacular, uh, a person says, well, this, this is a nice question, I'd like some, somebody else from Ulster to correct me or, or confirm me on this, but I have a feeling that when somebody says, I'm from X and X parish, that is a kind of a papist name, you know. Catholics talk about their parishes. Admittedly, of course, Church of Ireland has parishes too, but almost everything, including my name, you know, yeah. is, is, signifies something. So, so, in terms of the first circle of political action or effect or transmission, uh, the, what would seem like innocent exchange to the second or third circle within the first circle is charged. And I think that that's, that's where it begins with me, with indirection. On the other hand, in my first book, I had a poem called Docker, which has uh, the... The line about, about this character, that fist would drop a hammer on a Catholic. Oh yes, that kind of thing could start again. Now, I sense correctly, nobody could live in Ulster without sensing the danger. But a sign of my out-of-itness, even in Belfast, is the following. Dockers, apparently, were mostly Catholics, whereas it was shipyard workers who were steel, you know, the, the welders and the, uh, the fitters in the yard were mostly Protestant. So I got my sociology wrong uh, in the, <laughs> since I was out of it. I mean, I better just stick to County Derry, basically. <laughs> um, I wonder, I have a, a sense that you've learned a lot about how to uh, get a long reach within direction from um, poets writing uh, it, from Eastern Europe. The Polish, uh, Czesław Miłosz, yeah. who was a friend of yours, yeah. and yeah. I know you admired his yeah. work. Yeah. What, what did that tradition teach you? Because um, it was you were making us read um, people like Szymborska and uh, Miłosz. Yeah. Well, they they operate on the same indirection uh, process, with, with the except not not so much Miłosz. Miłosz is kind of nineteenth-century orchestral performance, uh, and he's he's I think has a nineteenth-century dimension to the to the oeuvre. He writes political books, he writes fiction, he writes philosophical treatises, he writes poetry. But it's always the same Victor Hugo majesty in the voice, you know. But the point was that but these were poets who were working uh, under censorship the other, in Poland. Yeah. And th there's a hard bitten 
untrusting, uh, but uh, stoical, we know what's required and we can survive till the thing comes around correct again. Vignev Herbert has that. Uh, Szymborska has it. A lot of the... Uh, I mean, Popa... I, I, this is a generation... I'm of the generation who read the Penguin New European Poets and they meant a lot to me. I think, I think they meant a good bit in Ireland because, spe- specifically in Northern Ireland, the sense that history isn't finished, you know, that things aren't settled. So there's always a... a a distrustful and a, a provisional and a hard-bitten attitude to the present. And I like that a lot. You've done a lot of translation uh, in your work, and um, it strikes me that translation is one way that you have of reframing history. And um, I wondered, it's almost a way of abolishing time, which is a very radical thing to do, and probably a central thing that poets do, I think, by means of time, meter. Um, could you explain a bit about that in relation to the Horace translation that's in District yeah. and Circle? Well, actually, I, I was teaching that poem. I've always said I'm not quite sure whether that verb and that noun can go together in that sentence, <laughs> how you teach a poem, but there it is. I, I, we, were, we were reading the poem together with a class in the year 2000 in Harvard. Uh, this is a... a a poem by Quintus Horatius Flaccus. Uh, it's, the, it's, a, it's a clear afternoon in, on the farm south of Rome somewhere, utterly still, and suddenly, suddenly terrible thunder occurs, shakes the earth, shakes him, and shakes, shakes his sense of safety in the world. So the poem uh, begins, uh, uh, Parcus deorum cultor et in frequens. I'm not a very, not a very, I don't know, I, I don't worship the gods very often, and I don't really take them that seriously. But the public's on and say, boy, was I knocked back. Boy, was I shocked. And it's about... And in the, in the actual uh, Latin, summa, the highest things, he realises, can be overturned by the god. Summa mutans, the god can change... The god changes... Things, the highest things are changed by the god. Ignota promens, those things which are not known are brought forward. And... Uh, Fate, fortuna, the way things are in the world, is bloody and rapax. It's, it's, like, a, it's like birds of prey. So the, the cruelty, danger and <clears throat> of, of, the ni- of the 2001 9-11 moment, when that moment came, I suddenly remembered this poem and I, I felt safe that it could handle the moment. And... Uh, I changed it a little bit, but not that much. Uh, instead of saying, Deus, uh, the central thing is Deus imo valet, the God certainly has power. So I changed that really to anything can happen. Would you like to read it? Yeah. Yeah. There is one word in this which uh, I toed and froed over. It's fancy. I like it because it's fancy, and I dislike it because it's fancy. <laughs> but it's from the Latin word telus, which means the earth. It's a she-earth, feminine earth, and it's telluric as far as I know, isn't it? How do you, I pronounce it telluric ash, ash from the earth. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. You know how Jupiter will mostly wait for clouds to gather head before he hurls the lightning. Well, 
Just now, he galloped his thunder cart and his horses across a clear blue sky. It shook the earth and the clogged under earth, the river sticks, the winding streams, the Atlantic shore itself. Anything can happen. The tallest towers be overturned, those in high places daunted, those overlooked regarded. Stropped beak fortune swoops, making the air gasp, tearing the crest off one, setting it down bleeding on the next. Ground gives. The heaven's weight lifts up off Atlas like a kettle lid. Capstones shift. Nothing resettles right. Telluric ash and fire spores boil away. One One of the most remarkable things about your work, I think, to me, is the way in which you have uh, the work comes out of a physical memory of things. I mean, as you say, the uh, objects are not just words. I remember reading a very small thing, uh, an endorsement that you sent for... uh, the Reader magazine in Liverpool. And I thought, when I saw this, I thought, this is typical Seamus Heaney. Rather than saying, I like this magazine, or something anodyne like that, you said, "Um, I always get pleased when I hear the... And it was a thud... Of, of the magazine on the, on the doormat. And I thought nobody else but Seamus would have said that because he, it wasn't thud, it was a better word than thud. Um, but, you know, I think your uh, uh, inner ear has a memory for uh, blows and uh, weight shifting. I mean, you were, having, you were talking about capstones moving, resettling there. Um, can you tell me about, is that something that you recognise about your own method of working as a poet? Yeah, I suppose method would be a strong word for it, but it's it's the way. I withdraw method. I know, I don't know, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's it's the necessary start for a lot of what I do. Um, to, thwump, to be thwump was the word for third. The thwump. Yes. Well, there it is. Quite often, the poems begin with uh, memories. Yeah, which. Which aren't just words; they are, they are physical. It's like a, like the nervous system comes alive. Yeah, I but mean, there are certain things that set um, certain well, poets away, don't they? Aren't they? I mean, uh, yeah, certain scenes, certain, and there's almost always a physical origin in it. There's a little little poem in this thing called Wordsworth Skates. Now, years and years ago, I saw Wordsworth Skates uh, in in Dove Cottage, dusty little things. Uh, and it, were, it was in the old Dove Cottage situation. I think they were in a kind of glass case or whatever. But I remembered, of course, his tremendous passage about skating on the ice. Well, then, I always remember them. But then, about four or five years ago, I woke we have this uh, cottage down in County Wicklow, and it's kind of slate roof and trees nearby. I woke in the middle of the night with some kind of scrape on the roof. I thought, is that... Was that a, was that a bird... Or was it, a, was it a thing? And then suddenly, I thought of Wordsworth Skates. <laughs> so the, the, it was that scrape, you know. How the hell could you pro- predict it was going to end up with Wordsworth Skates? Right. But you're lucky if those kinds of... If, if one thing swims into another, and if there's a, a kind of 
a transmission of uh, joy, association, and extension of possibility. But usually I do need some little physical send-off, yeah. Yes. Um, and I'm intrigued, very intrigued, by a little poem in here called A Hagging Match. Oh. And um, uh, perhaps, it, would you be kind enough to read it? Yeah, and I'll, yeah. I'll tell you why I, this is a favourite of mine in a second. <laughs> yeah. Hagging. Uh, it was one of our words for striking, cu- cutting, uh, you know, with an axe. Hitting with an axe, splitting wood with an axe, is to hag, hag the wood. A hagging match. Axe thumps outside, like wave hits through a night ferry. You, whom I cleave to, hew to, splitting firewood. Now, Seamus Heaney, are you telling us that Mrs. Heaney yep. splits the firewood in the yep. Heaney household? Yeah. The reason I'm interested in that is that as I was reading this poem, somebody else, my husband, was splitting firewood in the garden, so I was reading an exact description of that sound, so I'm guilty too. Well, well, actually it happened many, I mean I was, at that stage, freelancing, and uh, I had to get a script ready for an RTE programme. You're making we, an excuse we now. Were, no, 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 no. I, I remember it exactly because, naturally, Mrs. Heaney remembered it too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's about, uh, it's about 34 years ago. Oh, it only happened once? <laughs> it only happened once, yeah. <laughs> but once that, again, you believe that, you believe anything. Those thumps, yeah. But, I mean, the other thing, I mean, I, I quite like the pun on the hag, you know, and the, mm. and the match. The, because in Irish, the word kalyach, just to keep going on Kalyak just doesn't mean uh, an, an old, uh, you know, ugly person. It means a person with prophecy, mana, strangeness, a weird sister is a hag. <laughs> Long live the hag, so yeah, say yeah. I. But, I mean, th- this is a... Um, I was very interested in that um, for obvious reasons, but, I mean, you, you translate this in, in the same book uh, in, in a much larger way, um, in a poem called A Shiver. I mean, would you be willing to oh, read yeah. that? Yeah. This is about, I do remember this, hitting unmercifully, without restraint, the top of a, of a fence post to drive it, to stake the earth with it. And after the retaliations in Afghanistan and then Iraq and so on, the, the unrestrained exercise of force which you knew in your body when you were striking without restraint, letting force go without restraint, something in yourself is satisfied, but something in yourself is, I think, always saying, hmm, you've gone too far, you know. There should have been some hold back. So this is about this, this staked earth, you know, whatever sense you want to take it. A shiver... The way you had to stand to swing the sledge, your two knees locked, your lower back shock fast as shields in a testudo, spine and waist a pivot for the tight-braced tilting ribcage. The way its iron head planted the sledge, unyieldingly as a club-footed last. The way you had to heft and then half-rest its gathered force, 
like a long-nursed rage about to be let fly? Does it do you good to have known it in your bones, directable, withholdable at will? A first blow that could make air of a wall. A last one, so unanswerably landed, the staked earth quailed and shivered in the handle. Well, this is it. Do you want to read the Rilke? Do you want to read the Rilke? Oh, the Rilke, yeah. Yes, as where. Yeah, there's a translation. Uh, the Rainer Maria Rilke uh, was good on things and things and things. Is he a particular favourite of yours? No, I mean, he, he is there as a, someone that I go back to in spurts for about three days, thinking, God, this is magnificent. Mm. And three then, days? Well, you know what I mean? You're obsessed with a thing and then forget it for a long time. Mm. But uh, I found this poem, and I thought it was a terrific... It was a poem about trauma, really. Uh, a, a young fellow comes to the site of the house which has been burnt down, his parents' house, and it's the next morning, and the world phew, has changed. And again, I thought that after all kinds of pummelings and tumblings and wreckages, that this might uh, work. But basically, it's because it's a beautiful thing in itself, but it seems to have application. Rilke, after the fire. Early autumn morning hesitated, shying at newness. An emptiness behind scorched linden trees, still crowding in around the moorland house. Now just one more wallstead, where youngsters gathered up from God knows where, hunted and yelled and ran wild in a pack. Yet all of them fell silent when he appeared, the son of the place, and with a long forked stick dragged an out of shape old can or kettle from under hot half-burnt-away house beams. And then, like one with a doubtful tale to tell, turned to the others present, at great pains to make them realise what had stood so. For now that it was gone, it all seemed far stranger, more fantastical than Pharaoh. And he was changed, a foreigner among them. Um, I'd like to ask a few questions now, more specifically about the business of um, producing poetry um, and about the creative economy that you, ha- you particularly have because you've ri- written criticism, a-, a lot of criticism, and you've taught and lectured. And um, not in the... Um, obviously, in you know, the Wordsworthian fear that we murder to dissect, that, not in that sense, because it's obviously fed into your poetry, but how does that work as part of the general creative economy for you? Well, I think it had a lot to do with my getting a job in a university in 1966 because I had published a book of poems, I think, oddly enough. Um, I got my BA at Queen's University, 1961. I did a year's teacher training. I started to teach. Upwardly mobile after a year, teacher training college. Then a book published in 1966, an interview for a Queen's University, 
job in Queen's University. BA from five years earlier, now teaching students five years younger. Always a little anxious. And I said to the head of the department, um, one night when C. Day Lewis visited, C. Day Lewis visited Queen's, I felt really initiated. The professor, the head of the department, asked me to drive himself and C. Day Lewis to the hotel. We left D. Lewis off. Then I drove the professor home. At this point, emboldened by all this intimacy. I, 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 <laughs> seriously, yeah. Those were hierarchical days. I, I, I said, uh, sh- should I do an MA now? <laughs> because I was simulating an MA all the time. And he said, no, no, most people do that to get the job you have, he said. <laughs> <laughs> What you should do is write the occasional lecture or, or essay about poetry. And I was invited, first of all, to give a public lecture by Liverpool University, Kenneth Muir and Kenneth Allett. I felt really honoured and I did a, a prepared speech. And actually that is how it's continued ever since. Almost everything written in any, all of those pages were invitations and I took them on to prove myself, to, to pull my weight in the academy. And I, I always had this, always had and still have this sense that the poems are a grace and that you don't really rely on them for your bread and butter or for your job work, you know. They, they are different from your, your work. They aren't part of your bibliography in an odd sort of way. No. You know. Yeah. Um, they're more part of your fingerprints. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well done. And, um, thank you. <laughs> right. That's how it's going to be. <laughs> you once, I once heard you say that uh, the term an established poet is a contradiction in terms. You're very, 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 very established. <laughs> now, how, how does that... Does that make it more difficult to write in some ways? Or... I don't know the answer to that. I think since, I, since Death of a Naturalist was published, it was well received, for, which is a good thing, and then it has its anxieties, as you must know. <laughs> and uh, so, so self-forgetfulness becomes the sine qua non of successful secret action, you know? And, and that is the, really the test, uh, as far as possible, to forget yourself. Now... That, that, that is helped by having friends, I think. Not, you don't need a large number, but two or three talented, fond mockers. Mm. Uh, very, very useful. And, uh, and also desperation now and again. I have to write something. Established covers everything that has happened. But it, as you know, it doesn't mean a thing. No. Because... You're anxious about the next poem. And I think anxiety is part of the drive also. Uh. I mean, I'm told that your latest book, and I think we should congratulate you on behalf of the whole of our culture, that you're outselling Jamie Oliver <laughs> at the moment. Yes. You must have a huge amount or a huge capacity for self-forgetfulness in that case. I have, I have. Um, and and uh, without using some of the more usual methods that writers notoriously do use, um, 
But, I mean, I, I'd like to push you on this point, actually, because I think it's, you, your achievement in doing that is extraordinary. Well, I think uh, the house, the second house I have, the housing cabin, mm. hut, whatever you want to call it, uh, certainly for the last uh, 20 years, say, to go to this place has been saving for me. It's like going into a safe psychic space. And as I said, even if I don't work there, I feel as if I have worked. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's... Uh, that, that was... That's at a certain point, I was kind of in my 40s, and I was getting very busy. And I let myself get busy. And of course, I went to Harvard, which was bread and butter, and I was very grateful. I traveled to the United States. I taught four months of the year. And I actually didn't write at that time. I mean, I didn't. It was partly to do again with my apartment in Adam's house had windows on this side and windows on this side. And it was like living in a train corridor. And I don't know. For, I was also busy. And I, I suspect I felt as a, a seaman felt, feels. You know, you go up the gangplank, you're on, you're doing it. Then you come off. But I came a time when I, this was a very perilous division to come back home. The house I had in Dublin was, of course, our dwelling house, family house, became a mixture of travel agency and telephone exchange. And, and uh, at that point, I did feel crowded and anxious and threatened. But this house, came, this other place came into my possession. And I, I get there for two days a week or so, and it's absolutely necessary. We were talking uh, earlier about... Uh, um other poets, as you do, and we were mentioning another poet who um, gets up early in the morning, and you said this is not necessarily a good thing, <laughs> not for that particular poet, but I think um, what I would like to ask you is, what, what kind of routine do you keep? I'm always very, very interested in how other poets work. I mean, I take it you're not getting up at six in the morning by your previous comments. No, but I, I like to put that about that I am. Ah. <laughs> I was a, a, a journalist in Dublin. Actually, when I did, went to, I left Belfast, I was four years full-time, and I had a routine, and I did work uh, quite methodically. But uh, he, he said to me, look, he said, you're doing too many things. He said, you're, you know, you're, you're doing these readings, you're traveling, you're, you're, you're teaching. and you're, how, how do you do it? I said, oh, I get up at 6 o'clock, Eugene. And I'm, Geez, that's marvelous, he said. <laughs> but uh, I lived perilously, actually, for a long time in that regard. Maybe I didn't have a strong enough routine. Now I do have more and more time and more deliberately keep time. Uh, just to be silent, you know, for a couple of hours. Uh, but it's, it's, I find it impossible to, to uh, write poetry every day. I have, to be, I have to feel that there's something to write about. And uh, to be truthful, we both have experience of the workshop culture. And uh, there, there's industry labor and work uh, you know, and industriousness can produce a lot of stuff that you know is all there alright but I don't read it with the same appetite I mean I think, there's a, I think there are necessary things and then there are things that, that are you, keep, you could keep going my 
and every, I think every writer's problem is to know, to adjudicate between the truly given thing that is alive and that you, that you work with and keep moving to its limit. Uh, and then you could overdo it, you know, and you could, you could use your capacities to just keep going. And, uh, is it partly a question of dream time or dreaming time? It certainly is. Yeah. I think it's, it's com- almost completely a question of dreaming time. And if you get the right dreaming time, you can do the poem very, very quickly quite often. Yeah. I mean, the quicker, often the better. There we are. <laughs> so now that we've established that Mrs. Heaney does all yeah. the woodcutting yeah. Yeah, yeah. in your household... Um, how have you found... Um, you, you have travelled a lot. Um, do, you, do you find that poetry is quite a portable art? Uh, or do you need to be close to the magnetically charged accent of your Ireland to uh, write I, well? I think those are in my ear, all right, the accents. No, I, I don't think I need to be in Ireland to write well. But the fact is... I've written very little anywhere else, chiefly because most of the time I spent out of Ireland was spent on that uh, 1982 to 1996, one term a year, Harvard appointment. And as I say, when I was there, I was teaching, I was grading, I I was actually actually going reading and so on. So, uh, uh, so the, but I don't feel I need to be in Ireland to write, but I think I do need this noise in my year, but it's established, it's already in my year. I can't get rid of it now. Uh, so it's not a question of having to renew it? Uh, you renew it, I think, by writing poems that you like yourself, don't you? Uh, I mean, that's, that's the best renewal any uh, poet can have, is the sense that he or she has done it again. <laughs> and your, your sense of confidence and self-trust is renewed. I was quoting last night this uh, George Herbert line from his poem, The Flower, uh, which I was saying he, he was, I think, in his 40s, or maybe, maybe not even, when he wrote it. But it's about, I mean, it does begin, How swift and sweet, O Lord, are thy returns. And he's renewed, and he says, And now in age I, I bud again. After so many deaths I live and write I once once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing. So uh, that seems to me to have the complete sweet electricity of the gratitude and the fulfillment in it. One of the exercises that used to give us to do in Harvard now, (laughs) um, I remember one time you asked us to write a poem about our favourite word, um, and there were some very weird and wonderful words that came out from that workshop. Uh, um, uh, oh, it's gone out of my head now, the word that I did. Um, but you, you've got a very strong fondness for Anglo-Saxon, snubby, snagging, turnip, snedder words. Um, uh, are these words... I mean, I, do you look them up? No. You, know, you know so many of them. <laughs> I can, I can honestly say I never looked them up. When but did you hear them? They were all part of the first yeah. language. But snedding is a wonderful word. It means the slicing off of turnips or sugar beet or 
Swedes or whatever. Mm. Uh, and uh, I once heard it used by a, a country fellow in in County Derry. He was wanting his pencil sharpened. He said, "Sned that for me." <laughs> <laughs> but of course, he was being ironical because it's usually used of a more hefty engagement with materials. But uh, yeah. uh, no. Actually, I suppose politically speaking, to go back to that, I, the vocabulary factor was a little way of of pushing back against the centre, you know. Or it is a political choice, actually, that that yeah. drawing that type yeah. of vocabulary. Yeah, but I wouldn't go, want to go too far down that political protest. You know what I mean? No. But it's it's just part of the the cultural verity of certain things. You want to hold on to it. But it's married very much into your translation, for example, that, that won the Whitbed Prize, which is the translation of Beowulf, yeah. um, which is a, a celebration of that Anglo-Saxon uh, yeah. vocabulary. Yeah. It's a sl- slightly paradoxical. I know. Well, I should say that the... First of all, that Beowulf was commissioned, so that was fine. But I couldn't that have... That doesn't get you off the hook. No, I know. I know. I couldn't have actually done it without having memories and, in fact, a love of the weather of Anglo-Saxon poetry. And I had done it for three years in Queen's University as an undergraduate. And actually, the Battle of Malden I knew much better. It's shorter and cleaner. I knew the whole of the Battle of Malden by the time I finished. I knew the wanderer and the seafarer, the dream of the road. I actually liked the, I liked the weather of feeling and the texture of the language. So, of course, that was it. I think I may have mis, misheard or mis, misplaced my sense of what Anglo-Saxon sounded like. I thought of it as a, as a stronger, heftier, clangier thing mm. than it actually maybe was. Because when I heard a couple of uh, Anglo-Saxon specialists read it, it sounded a bit more like Swedish, you know. That's what, that's what I, my, my tutor used to call a fun, in a funny Anglo-Saxon voice. Um, I, yeah. yeah, but, but I, I like to think of it as big, you know, as a big utterance. And that's what I said in the introduction to the translation. I really couldn't get started until I thought, what kind of voice must this be, writ- this be translated for? Because I, wanted, I, I had a feeling that it was written originally for speaking aloud. Nevertheless, it was a written, artful poem. So, whatever way it was, it had to be sort of indestructible. Anybody should be able to speak it. Ian Paisley should be able to speak it, you know. (laughs) And and I thought of, uh, as I've written this in the uh, cousins of my fathers, who who had a kind of Native American majesty about their presence. And when they uttered, they uttered as if Every simple sentence had a kind of oracular force, like, we cut corn today. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> yeah, until five o'clock. <laughs> so, and, uh, I mean, I had, I had his voice, so the spear danes in days gone by, and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness. There... We have heard of those heroes' heroic campaigns. Mm. You know, it could be there was shield shafling, scourge of many tribes. Anyway, I'd like to ask you now about what you're working on at the moment. Um, before we finish with a couple of poems, because uh, I think we should end with the poetry. Um, I've heard rumours of something to do with farming and sheep's testicles. 
Is this a lie? I don't I, rem- I can't remember that, no. Oh. Uh, no, I was quoting to someone else. I think Owen Shears read That's a poem last night yes. about, about uh, castrating sheep. That's right. Well, I was quoting to him uh, our friend Carl Miller's uh, description of James Hogg, the Ettrick Shepherd. He was uh, in the, lived in the age of sensibility. Uh, he, he was, of course, a great hit in Edinburgh. Uh, he was a friend of Wordsworth's. Wordsworth slightly patronised him, but even so, they were friends. And uh, Carl Miller wrote this book called Electric Shepherd. And he noted that that as well as writing poems and so on, uh, James Hogg had written a book on a manual on sheep, sheep rearing and sheep farming. And one of the methods in which this castration process can be done is with the teeth. So <laughs> Miller said in a beautiful sentence, he was a man of feeling, he said, who bit the balls of his sheep. <laughs> so <laughs> so, that, that, so I got confused with my work. Ah, uh, that's... It sounded like something you could have written. I yes. <laughs> um, I wonder if you'd be kind enough to, to finish. Yes, okay. Oh, right. Um, could you finish with a very short poem? <laughs> I've been read the riot act. I read my very short poem, The Hagging Match. <laughs> All right. How about... Uh, is it be very short? Yeah. Uh, okay, this is, this is a little bit of prose. It's called Fiddleheads. Fiddlehead ferns are a delicacy. Where? Japan? Estonia? Ireland long ago? I say Japan because when I think of those delicious things, I think of my friend Torayawa and the surprise I felt when he asked me about the erotic. He said it belonged in poetry and he wanted more of it. So, here they are to Rayawa, frilled, enfolded, tenderized, in a little steaming basket, just for you. 